Hello and welcome to The Case Files. I'm Kate Chabot and over the course of this podcast series, I'll be bringing you the true life stories behind some of the UK's most fascinating legal cases, all told with unparalleled access to the people and lawyers closest to events. In this episode, we'll hear how two brothers playing ended up with one fighting for his life. They were jumping on the bed. Next minute, they'd both fall off the bed, catch the wire of the iron. Reuben did, and it went onto his chest. That burn led to a dangerous condition called sepsis. Sepsis is time critical. Every hour counts, really. In the most extreme cases, like someone with toxic shock syndrome, in those cases, literally one hour can make the difference between life and death. But mistakes at an A&E unit meant that despite clear symptoms, sepsis wasn't diagnosed. I saw the doctor and he said, oh, actually, um, he's got tonsillitis. I was like, OK. I did question. I was like, what about the burn? They've said it's an infection relating to the burn. He went, oh, no, it's too soon for it to be an infection relating to the burn. We'll hear how that error led to awful consequences. Your child's lying there in front of you, hooked up to everything and anything. They're talking about blood transfusions, organ failure, and that's if he's going to make it at all. In this episode, we'll hear from Louise Harvey-Smith, a working mum with a senior job in the Home Office, who lives in a village near Ipswich in Suffolk. Louise has three boys, William, Harry and Reuben. We'll be focusing mostly on Reuben, who was a lively toddler when an accident that could happen in any family home changed all their lives. Louise begins the story on a Sunday evening at home. Reuben was two at the time and sat on the bed booking my train tickets to go down to work in London the next day. Harry and Reuben playing on the bed next to me, um, put the iron on across the other side of the room to iron my uniform and told the boys to stop playing up. They were jumping on the bed. Uh, next minute, Reuben jumps onto Harry. They both fall off the bed, roll over to where the iron is and the eye catch the wire of the iron. Reuben did and it went onto his chest, which obviously caused me complete panic, um, rushed him straight through and put cold water on it. Realised it looked quite severe, so took him straight up to accident and emergency in Ipswich, where they said that obviously he had got severe burns and it looked like it was second degree but potentially third degree burns. Normally he'd be referred to Chelmsford Hospital, but that was closed. So they'd uh, sent some pictures over to Chelsea and Westminster, which is the next closest one, uh, the Burns unit there, and said, could I take him down um, first thing in the morning? By this time, it was sort of probably 10, 11 o'clock p.m. and I needed to be in Kensington for uh, nine o'clock that next morning. So um, Ruben was on morphine, actually. He was uh, quite happy on morphine. Um, so managed to get him to sleep and took him down to Chelsea and Westminster the next morning, sort of left four or five in the morning. Um, got there and they said, yeah, there is a burn there. Um, it looks like it might be superficial. We'll monitor it, be monitored at Chelmsford, but hopefully with the right treatment, it shouldn't go to third degree um, and get long-term scarring. As we were leaving there, they said um, burns um, have quite a high likelihood of getting infection and problems afterwards. So they gave me a leaflet which sort of said, look for any of these symptoms, don't phone, go to A&E, don't phone your doctor, phone us straight back if any of these happen in the next few days. Louise went home from the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London and continued to monitor her son carefully. He woke up um, early Wednesday morning 
and just really wasn't um, right. He'd got a rash had come up on his leg. He was really hot to touch. He had been drinking, but he didn't want to eat. Just really was sort of drowsy, not with it. His hands were cold, his feet were cold. So I got out my little leaflet, and it had got several of the signs. And I thought, well, I've never had a child with a burn. It was quite horrendous to me, but maybe this is a normal reaction. So I phoned up Chelsea and Westminster Hospital and said, went through the symptoms, temperature, rash, not wanting to eat, he's complaining, he's in pain, he's really drowsy, just not Reuben at all, really. And they said, it sounds like an infection relating to the burn. Take him up to Ipswich Accident and Emergency. Um, tell them that you've spoken to us, take in your paperwork, and they can contact us to go mm. through it. Before the accident, what kind of a boy was he? Uh, Reuben's been very different to my other two, so there's quite big age gaps between them. Um, Reuben's always been quite wild, so even before this happened, he was my little Captain Chaos. He's always been really exploring, getting into everything. Yeah, absolutely. So none of the other children required locks on cupboards. Reuben would probably work out how to get through the locks in the cupboards. He was very adventurous, loved being outside. Um, Yeah, full on, full of beans. So Reuben was not at all like his normal self as Louise took him back to the A&E department of Ipswich Hospital. On the way to driving up to the A&E, he actually vomited all over the car. So we got into Ipswich um, at lunchtime and it was really quite busy in there. So I gave him the symptoms. It's like he's um, just vomited everywhere. It's all over his burn dressing. Um, I've tried to clear up what I can. He's got a rash on his leg. Um, he was hot to touch. Um, I said, he's not wanting to drink now. He's not eating, which is really unusual for Reuben. He loves his food. He's just completely drowsy. Once again, something that's just not standard for Reuben. And he's got cold hands and feet. This was a crucial moment in Reuben's life. He had numerous symptoms that should have given away that he might have a very serious condition. How would the staff at Ipswich Hospital react? So I relayed to the nurses and the doctors um, that I'd spoken to Chelsea and Westminster. They'd said it was an infection relating to the burn or likely to be. And here's the contact details for them. They've said to give them a call. Now, understandably, um, the last experience Reuben had of a hospital was when he was getting his burn was being debrided, which is quite horrendous. He'd had morphine. So he was quite scared of the doctors and crying. But um, so they couldn't get him to comply with having blood pressure. Um, but he he just wasn't with it. We were there for nearly four hours. They didn't do any blood tests. They did some temperature, gave him some cowpole to try and reduce his temperature. Um, did a, a few observations, saw a couple of nurses and then the doctor. And uh, saw the doctor and he said, oh, actually, um, he's got tonsillitis. He's got really <laughs> smelly breath. And I was like, OK, um, what did you about take, the burn? Did you believe that? or? Well, at the time, um, I did question. I was like, what about the burn? They've said it's an infection relating to the burn. Um, what did they say? He went, oh, no, it's too soon for it to be an infection relating to the burn. And he went, he's got severe tonsillitis. And I went, but he's really lethargic. He's not with it. Um, he said, well, tonsillitis can have that impact. And my eldest, Williams, um, has had quinzies in the past where he's been hospitalised, where his tonsils have obviously swollen up so much. So I'd seen that that can actually knock you completely out. So, so you believed it at the time? Yeah, I was like, well, he's given me what feels like a reasoned explanation and he's told me not to worry about the burn. Louise and Reuben returned home. Another night passed. But Reuben didn't improve and the next day Louise became convinced something was seriously wrong. He just stood up and he wobbled and it sounds bizarre, but it, and the amount that he hadn't had to drink, the two things to me is, one, he's wobbled 
like he was going to faint or something. And all I really was thinking was dehydration. I was like, actually, he's... We drummed into us as with the red book and everything, ch- children dehydration. So it's like, oh, he's just not right. Do you know what? I'm, and I didn't actually think A and E. I thought Chelsea and Westminster. So it was them that I phoned back, and they went get him straight back. Why up. did you think Chelsea? And I Westminster? can't actually answer that. I think they. I don't know. I think because something deep down maybe was telling me that it was something to do with the burn. Um, so who did you speak to at Chelsea Westminster? Um, just somebody on reception and they sought further advice, but they just said, actually, you need to, it sounds like it's toxic shock or septic shock. Um, get straight back up to A&E. And if they don't listen to you, make sure you phone us back. He needs to be seen immediately. So even then, I don't think it really sunk in what that meant. Um so I went straight into A&E and it was then straight through, seen by doctors once I relayed the message. And then it sort of it all blends. It was chaos, really. And that's when you felt people realised this was quite serious. Yeah, there was, um, well, they actually turned around to me and said, your son is quite seriously ill. They were trying to get um, fluid boluses into him and his veins had collapsed. So they had to drill into his leg to get IVs in and... Um, they, they were mentioning sepsis, toxic shock. I didn't really toxic shock I'd heard of. So maybe me, I did Google it and I was like, there was an alarm bell going because actually looking at the symptoms, it kind of correlated with everything he'd had. Let's find out some more about sepsis and toxic shock, the conditions that threatened Rubin's life. Dr Ron Daniels is CEO of the UK Sepsis Trust and Global Sepsis Alliance. So sepsis is the way the body responds to an infection. So it's always triggered by an infection. It can be something as simple as um, a chest infection, a water infection, or even a cut or a bite or a sting. But in sepsis, the body's immune system goes into overdrive. And if we don't stop it, that starts to damage the organs. And how do you get sepsis from an iron burn? Any injury, anything that can allow bugs entry into the skin and the tissues under the skin, potentially can trigger the immune system. The immune system's there to fight bugs, of course. But in sepsis, it overreacts. That's what caused the damage. And what's the difference between toxic shock syndrome, which Reuben had, and sepsis? Toxic shock syndrome tends to be caused by something that's indwelling. And classically, we hear of toxic shock arising from a tampon. But the key thing with toxic shock is it's caused by a couple of bugs called staph and strep. The names really don't matter. But those particular bugs release toxins into the circulation. And that really inflames the immune system even more and causes a massively aggressive form of sepsis. So they're one and the same thing. It's a type of sepsis, is it? Yeah, particularly aggressive form. So what are the warning signs of having sepsis? So firstly, as anyone advocating, whether it's for an adult or for a child, we know our loved ones better than any health professional. And we have to be prepared to ask that question, could it be sepsis if we're very worried about someone who has an infection? But there are six symptoms to look out for. And they spell the word sepsis. S for slurred speech or confusion. E for extreme pain in the muscles or joints. P for passing no urine, no water in a day. S for severe breathlessness. I for it feels like I'm going to die and people really do describe that. And the final S for skin that's mottled or discoloured or very pale. Now obviously those symptoms will describe themselves differently in adults compared with very small children. But the fundamentals are the same. Ruben was seriously ill. Louise realised quite how bad things had got when they were then sent by ambulance to a London hospital. We got blue lighted from Ipswich down to St Mary's on the Friday. And so I think you have that realisation that if you're being blue lighted from Ipswich down to London that things aren't too great. 
and they were working on him constantly. The There was a massive sense of relief to me. They intubated him and I have to admit, I noticed a sense of panic when Ipswich were treating Reuben. When the acute team came in, it was almost like a relief to me. They just seemed very controlled, which obviously they're used to dealing with that level of um, children and how ill they are. But they were working on him constantly all the way down to London. And when we got there, we saw the consultant and they said that we're going to have to prepare you for the worst. The most for you can hope for at this stage is that he makes it through the night, but it's not looking good. Dr Ron Daniels from the UK Sepsis Trust explains the urgency. Sepsis is time critical. Every hour counts really. In the most extreme cases, like someone with toxic shock syndrome, someone with sepsis due to meningitis, who has that rash that we all worry about as parents, and someone who has very severe septic shock. In those cases, literally one hour can make the difference between life and death. Louise was desperate for someone to help. I think it was praying. I've never been a particularly religious person, but it was, it's, yeah, it's a mindful emotion, just trying to keep positive, but equally your child's lying there in front of you, hooked up to everything and anything. Um, they're talking about blood transfusions, organ failure, and that's if he's going to make it at all. But then we saw the consultant that morning and they said that he was actually responding really well um, to the fluid treatment and the, the antibiotics. They'd switched them over and... Um, that actually it looked, didn't know the long-term damage, but there was hope that he was going to make it. So kind of turned the corner over that night. So from that point on, um, it was still quite a roller coaster. Um, basically, one of his feet had started, gone mottled and uh, black on the ends of his fingers and toes, and his right foot was extremely swollen. So they said that they wished to operate on it and do a fasciotomy which is literally cutting open the top of the foot to relieve pressure. Mm. Um, so I'd gone off to have coffee with my friends. They'd come up to support me. And I had a missed phone call from the hospital. And my heart was literally thinking, that's it. They're going to tell me he's gone. Um, I got back there and it was they were wanting permission for the operation. But that, to be honest, since that moment, I've not stopped smiling because... I genuinely thought I was going to go back and Ruben wasn't going to be okay. The relief when I saw that they were like, no, no, we want to send him off for an operation. He's doing really well in the circumstances. And I don't think I've had moments since then when I've got upset, but there's one thing being told he may not make it through the night, but that actual gut feeling that actually this could be it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been so grateful. Um, The fact that seeing him there even wired up and everything else. And he continued. He had the operation, and so what's the, what do they do? They, they they cut the top of the foot. To yeah, they the literally put, do two incisions along the top of the foot to relieve the pressure to try and encourage. But it that wasn't the end of it, was it? No, no. So that would have been the Saturday or Sunday, and it really was just time. They said that he was responding really well to everything, and really what they wanted to do was to slowly try and wean him off all the drugs that he was on. I mean, he was on a whole host of stuff at this point. Um, but do it slowly just to see how he reacted. Reuben was over the worst danger of dying, but was still unconscious in intensive care with Louise close by. They said that when I was in there with him, his heart rate actually would go down in a good way. Mm. So I actually slept in intensive care with him. And it would have been on the Friday, they said they wanted to try and bring him round, which was a week since he'd been, obviously, told that he wasn't going to make it or he might not make it. 
And once again, he amazed everybody and came round. But after a week of intensive care, Reuben was finally conscious again. The question now was what damage had been caused by having sepsis. The consultant down at St Mary said to me, need to take you in. And she had tears in her eyes. She said, I'm really sorry, but the... In terms of the brain damage and the organ damage, things are looking quite good, but the likelihood is that he's going to lose um, one, if not both, of his legs and his hands. Um, and I was honestly smiling. I went, but a week ago we were facing he's not going to be here. So uh, I just gave her a hug. She's one of the she's such a lovely doctor. And you could tell the sort of pain in her that she was having to tell me that. Um, so we got transferred back up to Chelmsford Burns Unit and... Literally a waiting game, really. Uh, they like to leave amputations as long as possible to see how much they can save. But Reuben just kept getting infection after infection. So it's the 20th of August. They decided to go ahead with his amputation. So a month after he'd suffered the burn. So how did the rest of the family cope with all of this going on? Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it was a shock to them all. Um, certainly his big brother, I think it was, yeah, it was... They've definitely had tears over it, and I think it was they're torn between the balance of their little brother's alive, which is great, but equally seeing the pain and some of the stuff that he's been through can make them very angry. I think it's um, frustrating that it ever happened, but I think deep down they're just grateful that he's here. And but for them, they were driving down to London to come and see him, and on the I'd had to phone them up and say you need to come down and say your final goodbyes because it's not looking good. So that must have been a tough uh, yeah. call. Yeah. So they, you know, my son was what twenty two, twenty three at the time to be told to come and say goodbye to your brother. But they did really well. They were really strong um, and there for me when I needed them, and just kept the house sort of ticking by because I was living out of the hospital at the time. So at what point did you realise that there'd been a misdiagnosis that someone had made mistakes here? Um, so it was actually the point at which we went back to A&E and they said the toxic shock sepsis. Whilst they were treating him, I was Googling it. And I have to be honest, um, as soon as they said sepsis, I looked at it and I was like, hang on, the sepsis six um, that was mentioned earlier. That literally, I was like, well, he had five out of six. So the six symptoms. Yeah. He had five like, out of six of them. Yeah. He had the temperature. He had the vomiting. He had the rash. He had the. He was lethargic. He'd got hot, cold hands, cold feet, mottled skin. Um, I didn't know that he'd got an elevated heart rate until we got the medical reports afterwards. Um, he'd been vomiting. I think actually had all of them. Looking back now, um, so to me, even at that point, I started taking notes. I mean, I'm, I'm a detail person, so I keep records of everything. Anyway, um, but there was already something in me going, "Hang on, not quite. How right. did this happen?" I was like, "Why was this? We were here yesterday." He hasn't changed. This is exactly how you discharged him. And even when, um, certainly not at Ipswich, but once we got to St Mary's and Chelmsford, obviously you relay the story. Nobody actually went, that's wrong. But there was certainly... You could tell by the reactions. They were like, I'm really surprised that they didn't think of this. There was no accusations, but there was enough there that... You could tell there was something that went wrong. So so you sought legal advice, did you? So um, I had an awful lot of time. I was working as as well whilst Ruben was in hospital. Fortunately, I could do my work remotely. But I was also doing a lot of research around toxic shock, sepsis, um, 
making notes, looking at what to expect. And on the day that Ruben had his amputations, I had a few hours spare. So I actually drafted the... <laughs> I can't um, believe you were doing that on the yeah. day he was having his amputations. I need to keep busy. Um, I drafted the complaint to Powell's um, at the hospital. And I'd already made um, the patient and liaison service okay. for the hospital. I'd already sought legal advice. To me, I, I just knew deep down, without having the expert evidence there to support it, that this shouldn't have happened. Louise was represented by Slater and Gordon. Matthew Smith is one of their clinical negligence lawyers. He told me what the case was against Ipswich Hospital. Well, the case against them was that they hadn't examined him properly, uh, which includes taking into account a previous history, uh, such as the, the, the attendance the day before and, and the two days before that, and also listening to, to Louise, the, the, the mum, to say, you know, this is what's happened, this is what's changed since the initial uh, burn. He's now presenting with these symptoms, uh, and therefore you should have had an index of suspicion to, to a degree of what else it could be. You may have tonsillitis, for example, as your primary uh, thoughts, but you then need to think, what else could this be? Because these are other symptoms not really common necessarily to, to just tonsillitis. The hospital was quick to admit its mistakes. How often does that actually happen in practice? In practice, to be honest, not very often. Uh, this, I think because this was such a classic mistake, uh, a classic drop in standards of care, uh, when, when Louise wrote to PALS, patient and liaison service, complaining about what had happened, they did their own internal report uh, and they realised that, yes, our, our standards have, have fallen below what's required. Uh, and based on that, uh, of course, we, we've then drafted a more formal letter to them saying, well, this is what's happened, this is what we're saying has gone wrong, and this is what has now happened to Ruben and what we'll be needing in the future. And they have quite a long time after that usually to, to come back and investigate, but it was only a couple of months or so after that letter that they come back and say, actually, we agree. We, 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 we dropped our, our standards of care here, and yes, we admit that his, his legs should not have been amputated had we treated him earlier and quicker. So you have secured an initial payment to Ruben's mother. Yes. What happens next? What happens next is because Ruben is so young, so he's only seven years of age, and of course he's constantly growing, constantly developing from a schooling point of view, also from a phys physiological point of view, well, he needs to be reassessed at, at various stages up until and past puberty really until the point where he stops growing and it becomes more clear into the future what he will require. And at those various different points, we will then go back to the defendants and say, well, now he needs X, Y, and Z more, whether it be replacement prosthetics, which we don't, don't have money for, or whether he needs uh, adaptations in his house uh, and further, or further, further care, for example. Uh, then all of those things we need to ask them for, for money uh, to provide. And in, in a case like this, ballpark, how much could this cost the hospital? Uh, ballpark, I wouldn't want to say because it's far, it's far too early. Uh, if it was if it was an adult or, or in essence, you'd stop growing and you knew what the future entails in the whole, you'd be able to say that. But because he is so young, it's going to take many, many years until we know how he will develop into a young adult and ultimately what he wants to do in the future. Uh, but of course, the, the idea is to get him to be able to live on his own when he grows up. Because of course, he's only seven years of age. So once he goes through schooling or whatever he wants to do in the future to make sure that he can, as far as possible, do everything he, he could have done had all of this not happened. Are you able to say how much his mother has been given a payment so far? Uh, she's been given in excess of £1 million so far. Uh, which a lot of that will provide accommodation and specialist uh, adaptations within that property. And also, as Louise has already said, the cost of prosthetics is, is 
astronomical. Really. And that's and just what the first four years of living like this. Absolutely, that's just the first four years, and, and he's only seven years of age, and. and, and his growth will, will continue for the next at least eight eight years or so, uh, and every single year he's going to be changing the length of, of, of his legs, growing, and therefore will need these replacing. It may sound like a lot of money, but that is the reality if you want to give a child with disabilities like Ruben as full and active a life as possible. Louise told me that getting the admission of guilt quickly had been a real relief. One of the big reliefs to me was the early admission by the NHS of liability because... I'd looked into this in quite detail and knew that the impl- financial implications of what we've been going to need for the rest of his life are huge. Um, prosthetics are fifteen to twenty thousand pound a pair. Um, to get that liability and not have to fight was actually a huge relief to us. Um, Does he realise he- he's different? Though? Uh, yeah, I think the transition to primary school now. He's now in year two. We're f- certainly facing more challenges. Um, what does he say? He's, oh, mummy, why are my legs different? People don't like me because I'm different. He's overhearing things where, unfortunately, children do say things. So a couple of weeks ago, it's, Ruben, we don't like Ruben because he's got robotic legs. Um, I said to him, oh, he's gone back to school. It's just finished half term. And he went, I said, it'd be nice to see all your friends. He went, oh, I only have Fleur. She's my only friend. Nobody else likes to play with me because I'm different. He's now becoming a lot more aware that... That must be different. really hard for you to hear. Yeah, and you try to keep positive. I'm like, oh, but it's great. You don't get smelly feet. You know, you get bored. I can't change my legs. You get bored of them. You've got Iron Maiden on your legs. You can have whatever you want on them, you know. You could just take your legs off when they hurt. Mine, I'm stuck with mine. So you try to put a positive spin on it, but it is heartbreaking to know that he's going to face that for the rest of his life. And it's not something you can hide. He can't wear trousers because of the space. He needs to wear shorts. They are so obvious, and he's constantly getting attention positive and negative and I'm sure there's days he just wants to hide away I certainly get to the point where I'm like oh do you know what I cannot do with any more staring if I notice it he must be noticing it so how has what has happened to Ruben impacted on you how has it changed your life so initially I think it was such a roller coaster that you kind of just go with it I was working full-time work were really good I'd got quite a pressurized job working in London a lot um managing a house, a single mum with three boys, um, and I kept going. And really, I think it was a couple of years ago that um, Ruben was having to go to, to school, the appointments were increasing. It probably took its biggest impact on me, and I realised I can't actually do everything and be everywhere. Um, and it did impact on my work. Um, I was having to argue for Ruben to get support in school, and... It's really hard to admit, but I'm not super mum. And it got to the stage where actually I thought, I just cannot do this anymore. Um, plus so you had to change what you had originally presumably thought. Well, we got carers in. Yeah, I got carers in and I was hoping that would sort it. But there's still, there's just me raising Ruben. Unfortunately, um, Ruben's dad didn't feel able to be able to cope with it once he lost his legs. So I've been pretty much doing it by myself. Um, the carers was a massive support, but I was still having to fight for everything. Um Having now spent time with Ruben, um, I think my focus is different. I think I'm more interested in actually doing something more meaningful around supporting children with special needs. There's a lot of failings on that side of things around sepsis and something that would give something back. I've been really fortunate. I've had the backing of the lawyers. I've had lots of support, family and friends around me. I'd like to be able to give some of that back to somebody that may not be in the same position that I was in when it all happened with Ruben. And what about the way you feel about the medical profession, given what you've been through? In that whole space of that week with Ruben, I saw the NHS at its worst in A&E with the failings, but I also saw it at its best with St Mary's. If it wasn't for 
the doctors and nurses in St Mary's um, who are absolutely amazing and the same for Chelmsford and Greenfield. Reuben wouldn't be here. How much do you trust the medical profession? Um, I have a reasonable amount of trust, but I would certainly challenge and question things now. Let's find out a bit more about what the options are when things go wrong during medical treatment. Lisa O'Dwyer is Director of Legal Medical Services at the charity Action Against Medical Accidents. They aim to increase patient safety and help people through all the legal difficulties of taking doctors to court. She says it's much harder these days to be able to bring a civil claim for medical negligence because of the huge costs involved. At one stage, we had quite a wide range of funding available through legal aid. That has now been severely curtailed and is only available for um, brain-injured babies. Firms who take on clinical negligence claims will only do so if the actual cost of bringing the proceedings is uh, not likely to outweigh the amount that's likely to be recovered. So there's a value uh, aspect to um, the claim as well. Uh, And what is the actual legal process, though, of making a claim? What I would say is that the, the best legal process is some that um, is to go to a solicitor who knows what they're doing, who's got demonstrable expertise and experience in this field. And I would always recommend anybody um, who is looking to bring litigation to go to somebody who's been accredited. There are three main accreditation bodies. There is ourself, AVMA, um, there's a law society and an organisation called APOL. Um, and we all offer a form of accreditation. AVMA, of course, was the first organisation to introduce accreditation uh, with the longest running. There are a number of other routes. And and AVMA's uh, services helps to guide people through those routes. So we have a helpline service, written advice and information, and where appropriate an inquest service as well. Uh, and we offer our advice and information free of charge to the public. But I, I think it's about helping people find their way through those processes. It depends what people are looking for, really. Um, Very often people come to us, litigation, as I say, is not necessarily the first thing uh, that they want. Uh, What they're looking for is answers. Um, What they want is an open and honest account of what's happened. And they want to know that whatever's gone wrong has been addressed and it's not going to happen to anybody else. How often do you feel that people are unwilling to pursue a claim because... They respect the NHS too much. They're almost in awe of it. I think that uh, there is a general feeling of uh, respect for the NHS, rightly, actually. Um, I mean, the standard that is offered is is generally of quite a high standard. It's just that when things go wrong, it goes badly wrong. I think there is a general reluctance. But what we find is that very often when people start perhaps using the complaints process on their own or start asking questions, they feel that doors are shut um, and that they're not getting the open, honest answers that they are, they're expecting to get. And I think that that actually drives people to litigation. Very often, I, our, our understanding uh, from feedback we get from uh, patients and so on is that Uh, In fact, they don't want to bring litigation, but what they want is answers to their questions. And if the complaints process is not going to offer that, and in fact, if they feel that actually the complaints process has only served to to, um, uh, disguise what has actually happened uh, to them or that there hasn't been the honesty that they're looking for, uh, that can cause them to become angry and that does drive people towards litigation. Lisa O'Dwyer from Action Against Medical Accidents. When you listen to Louise's story, it's hard to imagine what else she could have done, but she herself wishes she'd known more about sepsis. Had I been aware of sepsis, like I was about dehydration, like meningitis, if you speak to most people and say, what are the signs of meningitis, they will tell you 
put a glass on. If the spots don't disappear, it could be meningitis. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'd got that awareness about sepsis, one of the big things we've sort of been campaigning for is, could it be sepsis? Dr Ron Daniels from the UK Sepsis Trust says we need to make sure people are aware of sepsis and its dangers. What this needs is a concerted awareness campaign. We've seen it for meningitis, we've seen it for stroke, we've seen it for cardiac arrest. Concerted public awareness that reinforces this message over a period of months and years can help to save thousands of lives. Ron also believes that parents need to feel confident that they know their child best. The parent just needs to trust their instincts. They need to be prepared that if they're very worried about their child with infection, particularly if they've never seen their child this unwell before, they need to just ask, could it be sepsis? And be prepared to be assertive. Be prepared to say, no, I'm not going home. I'm worried about sepsis. Can you run some more tests? Louise has needed determination to fight to expose medical error and win support for her son as he embarks on what will be a life full of challenges. It seems that Reuben has inherited much of his mother's drive and spirit. Reuben, I'd be very surprised if he doesn't go into comedy or acting and humour when he's older. He was wild before, but certainly what's happened to him, I'd say 90% of the time doesn't hold him back. He's really outgoing, confident. Certainly he's been around adults an awful lot, so he his vocabulary is a lot older than you'd expect it to be. He just gets on with it. We're really fortunate we're involved with um, limb power for kids. So he goes down and meets other amputee children. They've got Olympic, uh, Paralympic coaches that train them. He wants to do everything. He wants to do football. Um, next year we're going on a uh, rock cruise. He likes rock music. He's got Iron Maiden legs at the moment with skulls on them, which is great <laughs> at six or seven. Reuben will never conform. He's embraced being different. Yes, there's moments he, oh, why are they looking at me? But he just gets on with it and he's my inspiration everybody says oh it must be hard to be honest you just look at him get one smile and I know I'm his mum so I'm bound to say it but I don't know it just makes you appreciate what you've got I think the biggest le- re- uh, lesson Ruben has taught me is imagine you're in the middle of the night and need a wee and we can just get up and go for a wee the biggest thing I learned is you haven't got your legs on that luxury is no longer there and it's something that we all take for granted he doesn't take anything for granted and nothing stops him. Cupboards up high, Reuben will grab a bench. He will, If he's got his legs off, he's on his knees, he will grab the bench, he'll grab the chair and he will climb. He will use his stumpies to climb and get what he wants. Um, yeah, I think all children with disabilities, they show us a resilience that's above and beyond. We wanted to hear a little from Reuben himself, so we got Louise to ask him a few questions for us. How old are you? Seven. What is it that you like doing? Going to the forest and making Lego. Who's your favourite band? Iron Maiden. What games do you like playing? Uno and Frustration. And what is it that you want to do when you um, are older? Drive a helicopter. I hope Ruben gets his helicopter ride. And that is all from this edition of The Case Files. Thanks to Louise Harvey-Smith and her son Ruben for telling us their story. Thanks also to Matthew Smith from Slater and Gordon, Dr Ron Daniels from the UK Sepsis Trust and Lisa O'Dwyer from Action Against Medical Accidents. If you want to know more about this story or other episodes of The Case Files, have a look on our website, slatergordon.co.uk forward slash podcast, or head over to our social media channels and search hashtag casefilespod and join the conversation. In our next episode, we'll hear how a surgeon in Birmingham managed to harm hundreds of women by performing botched operations. 
we'll ask why no one stopped him. Subscribe now to hear that story. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.